Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Portland-based jazz pianist, organist, drummer, and trumpeter, along with being a teacher and a great band leader, George Colligan. He is one of the most original and compelling jazz cats of his generation, and he spent some time with Neon Jazz talking about his latest 2018 CD called Nation Divided. He's also highly in demand as a sideman, playing with the likes of Cassandra Wilson, Don Byron, Buster Williams, and so many others. We talked about quite a bit, so please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. So, George, thanks for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz, man. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. So, I guess right now, in this point of American history, in light of the midterm elections, and I don't want to get mired in anything political, but it seems like the name of your album... Nation Divided is probably just about as apropos for right now in our history than any other time. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into the creative forces and your vision for this album. It's a great album, and I just want to talk to you about this project. Well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoy the album. You know, I've actually I've done solo piano recordings before. I did a, a number of them for Steeplechase. And those were sort of a mixture of standard, uh, I don't know if you could say standard material, but sort of like, you know, other people's music. It was a bit of my own. And those were some, maybe somewhat spontaneous, um, and more based on the fact that, uh, I was in Copenhagen at the time. You know, steeplechase, the, the steeplechase aesthetic is very, uh, how should I put it? it it's very quick, you know, the the process is very, uh, it's, it's like an improvisation, you know, there's not a lot of time spent on the recording process, it's sort of usually, Niels Winter from Steeplechase will do, but at least two recordings in one day, if not three, you know, it was, these were just a couple hours, you know, and I'm sort of used to working like that, but, um, you know, that sort of influences how your recordings come out, like if, if it's, you know, it's almost more like a live record, so... I wanted to do a solo record that maybe had a little bit more thoughtfulness in it, some, maybe some prepared material, and then also some improvisational material. I picked a few pieces that were new. Um, I picked a few things that I had wanted to record for a long time. Um, it just so happens that Nation Divided is, you know, I thought that was a good theme because there's a, because of one of the pieces on the, the CD, uh, and then there's some other things that that have a little bit of political reflection, or I should say um, it reflects some of the things that are going on in our nation. And I think that's it's not new to for musicians and artists to think politically, even though I think that there is a certain, you know, some people will say, well, music will change everything. You know, music, all we need, you, you know, because I will lament about certain things going on in the world, and people will say, well, people need to hear your music, and music will heal and I think that's possible <laughs> if only it were that easy, you know. There's so much great music. It certainly helped to heal me, but if, if it was really that easy. So I don't know. In a way, this recording is maybe my question more than my answer. The question is, music matter, you know. And I think it matters for us to, to sort of, you know, live our lives. It, it's, it helps us. But it doesn't necessarily solve anything. In terms of the United States, in terms of the history, you know, it, this isn't necessarily anything new. It's just in a different box. It's sort of been 
the division in the nation, I think, has just been rebranded. Yeah. Uh, well, that's the problem is, is a lot of people have short memories. So, like, when you look at, you know, uh, the campaigns of Nixon, the campaigns of Reagan, the campaigns of – you know, what's interesting is that a lot of people feel like, well, we're not very happy with this president, you know. First of all, that's not a new idea, but that's what we're supposed to be able to freely express with something called freedom of speech. I mean, that's one of the things that makes our country great is the 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 ability to speak out, you know, that we aren't we don't have a lockdown on that like we do like there is in other countries, you know. But the idea of having a terrible president is not new either, you know. I mean, whether our current president is the worst History will 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 say, you know, we've had many terrible presidents. If you just want to look at the presidency, I mean, obviously Andrew Johnson, you know, uh, Franklin Pierce. I mean, like, you know, history talks about. I mean, it's entertaining to to you know read and 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 you know watch documentaries about some of our our previous presidents, you know. You know what I mean? Like uh, Warren Warren Harding was a pretty terrible president, although. Then you look at people and say, well, you know, he, he, we go back and see the good things that he did. I mean, and, and then you could also see the, the, the things that um, JFK did that were not possible, you know. So, I don't know. I think that's what's interesting about history and sort of like, you know, uh, trying to get, assess, you know, the present through the lens of the past. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Yeah, well, all, all politics is is the big carousel, and it all depends on how long it takes to come back around. Because ultimately, it will reverberate, but it will sound different, you know. And I think yeah. pro- probably in this modern day and era of being so saturated with everything being so transparent, everybody has cameras, we got reality TV everywhere. We would like to think that we have people that are being honest and upfront with us, and I guess that to me seems like what we're, what the precipice that we're standing on and we're tired of, whether it's our president or it's Congress or it's any guy that comes into a grade school and decides to start forking over something that's disingenuous, that's condescending, and that doesn't hit us on a root level of being kind of just regular people. And I think we're tired of that. And I think that right. your leadership embodies that principle. And if you're going to have fighting and lying be a part of what you do, whether you're Republican or Democrat, it's time for that to go away because no one wants it. I, I agree with you. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, unfortunately, and, and, you know, the other thing, too, is sort of the politics is blood sport politics. Yep. You know, we, we talk about, like, you know, oh, this is such a bitter campaign and the rhetoric. You know, you go back to Andrew Jackson's time and you go back to, you know, earlier campaigns in the 19th century. And it, it wasn't the same because we didn't have this sort of national media, but it, it was very similar. I think that in a way that part of it has it's always been there. I think it's, some of these things are not necessarily new. I think that maybe we could say that I'll say for myself. You know, and obviously I learn, I tend to lean a certain way, but I, I think I was kind of lulled into complacency by eight years of a Democratic president, you know, um, and not really feeling like I needed to think about some of these other ideas. Um, I mean, that's a whole other discussion, too, in terms of how effective Barack Obama could be with 
uh, an oppositional Congress, you know, and maybe we'll maybe we'll see a, a Democratic um, House of Representatives will be a balance. I hope so. The theme of my record, I think, is is more about the question rather than the answer, because I don't think anybody has the answer. But I think it's sort of like the times like these will make you really think about life and and the future in a different way. And I and I would say that definitely the past two years I've I've thought about things differently. And anytime you're you experience something, because I, I for me witnessing somebody so reprehensible in my opinion become president was traumatic for me because of the way i believe i was in new yeah. york when 9/11 happened that was very traumatic as well and so uh you know it just makes you think about what you want to do with your life and what's important to you and 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 art and we're lucky as artists that we can um put that into our music or put that into whatever we're doing and and uh and it's more about the emotional aspect of it, and not again, not necessarily anything specific, because I'm <laughs> I'm not running for any office, <laughs> you know. And and I think I, I probably wouldn't be a great politician, you know. Uh, and that's the, that's the other thing too, is you think about just like the whole idea of somebody saying, "Well, I'm going to represent." There have been times when I'm like, "Well, maybe I should pursue that," you know. My father had experience in politics. And so I, I kind of I would say that was part of my upbringing. He he worked for Jimmy Carter. My father worked for the Carter administration under Tip O'Neill, and so um, you know I used to kind of hear about these ideas and and uh, and it's interesting though because I think Carter I think Jimmy Carter is a great man, but most people most historians uh, rank him pretty low as a president. Yeah, I some of that I think a, yeah it's astonishing you know that. and. And but but a lot of the ide- ideals that he uh, believes in, I believe in those as well. But I think from the technical as- aspect of doing the job, I don't think he was very good. And it's interesting too because I, I think you could make a maybe tenuous, but you can make a comparison with Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump in that there's that outsider thing that appeals to a lot of people. And in, in in terms of the timing of Jimmy Carter, obviously Nixon and Ford and the Vietnam War, people wanted to kind of go a completely other direction, you know. And I can, I can really see that, you know. Uh, in some ways, you know, Carter being, being this completely unknown, but having the press, the press really liked Carter, so he got a lot of attention, and in the same way that Trump, I mean, he's he's like a garbage fire, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, he's, he's like a car wreck, you know, you can't look away, it's like, there's, it's stimulating, even if you hate him, you know what I mean, so the press definitely is partially to blame for Donald Trump, they gave him so much free press. So much free publicity, you know, so much attention, and I, I see a bit of a similarity there. You know, Carter just had a lot of bad luck and didn't. And it's interesting. I mean, I would say they're completely the opposite in the sense that Carter promised he would never lie to the American people, whereas Donald Trump constantly lies, and he basically has one 
his core following that he'll just basically tell them what they want to hear. It's, yeah. I mean, that's what's uh, so sad. And yet, yeah. in some ways, America likes entertainment. <laughs> yeah, and we do. So, like, it, it really shouldn't be a surprise. But what I hope is that I would really like to take, like, somehow get that element out of politics. I mean, unfortunately, it's, you know, we have two more years at the very least. Look, I'll, I'll take, I'll take last night. I mean, obviously it's not perfect, but it's, I feel like it's a step in the right direction. At least it doesn't feel as hopeless, you know, as it has in the past, other times in the past two years, you know. You know, in terms of how I want to, um, make a difference, if you will, you know, posting stuff on Facebook or, you know, whatever. I mean, it, it only has but so much effect. I actually um, had a fundraiser in Portland where I uh, had a bunch of musicians, you know, the top Portland musicians. We had a we had a, a fundraising concert where we raised money for something called uh, uh, Raices, which is a, a organization that gives uh, legal help to migrant families and children. And so we raised a whole bunch of money for them. And I felt like, well, that's, at least I did something. It's, it's not just complaining. It's actually doing something, you know, yeah. and, and making a statement. And, and, you know, it's sort of saying like, hey, we, we are people that we are against this. You know, we, we want to help these people, you know. So I think we need to have more of that instead of people just, like sort of posting like, ah, oh, this is messed up, you know, and trying to think of the most clever means they can or, or whatever, you know what I mean? Like that sort of thing. Like people need to, in whatever small way, make a difference, you know, not just say you're against these types of things, but show it if you can. So let me ask you this. Did you grow up in New York? No, I, I was born in New Jersey um, and I was raised mostly in Maryland in Columbia, Maryland, which is a, a considered a suburb of Baltimore. So you're a pianist, an organist, a drummer, a trumpeter, a band leader. You're a teacher as well. So talk to me about the beginnings of how you got into music and even the jazz music you listened to in the beginning. My parents were not musicians, but they they had a bit of a music collection and they were interested in music. My, my father was into um, the swing era bands like... Um, you know, Harry James and Benny Goodman. He had a Bunny Berrigan record. Um, and they also had a Fast Waller record, which I always liked as a kid. Um, uh, they, they were into musicals. My mother had, uh, you know, Judy Garland records. And, you know, they had, like, soundtracks of My Fair Lady. And, you know, my father had some some uh, some 78s of uh, Toscanini. You know, so I don't know. I... I uh, I, I wouldn't say it's a musical household, but there was some interest in music. You know, my parents liked to sing because they were really into musicals. Sometimes they would sing to me and, and we would learn little silly songs, you know. I took piano lessons in second grade and I only lasted about a month. Um, I didn't, I didn't practice. I didn't really, I didn't get it, you know. And then I took, my father told me he, that he thought I should play trumpet. Because he, he always wanted to be a trumpet player. He really liked Harry James. And actually, he had some Jonah Jones records, you know, which is another guy that people don't ever talk about. But, like, uh, you know, he had a bunch of Jonah Jones records. And, um, you know, and so he wanted me to play trumpet. And so when they came around asking if people wanted to be in the band in fourth grade, I, I 
I said I would play trumpet, and I still didn't really get it in terms of practicing and and that. And I tried to quit, but I was kind of too too shy to tell the band director I didn't want to do it. So I played another year. Then when I got into sixth grade, it was the you know uh, middle school, different band director, and uh, and his name was Lee Stevens, and he was super inspiring. And I started to really get into practicing and. And uh, and also, uh, Mr. Stevens turned me on to a lot of listening, you know, because um, I took a, a music appreciation class, and and he, you know, kind of exposed me to Clifford Brown and and uh, Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters and Weather Report and Coltrane and and then there was a neighbor on my block that gave me a bunch of records. Um, they're mostly trumpet players. Gave me a Clifford Brown record. Gave me a Miles Davis record. I think he was lending them to me, but <laughs> I don't think he ever got them back. You know, uh, there was a, a Art Farmer, Donald Byrd record, uh, Dizzy Gillespie record. Um, I think there was a Coltrane record in there. But, you know, so I started really getting into listening, and I started listening to more classical music. I was really into Beethoven and Stravinsky, and and it was, you know, this is before the distraction of the Internet, so, like, when you listen to a record, you really sat down and listened to it. And so that was one thing I really loved to do. I was trying to figure out how to make the connection. Like, I, I didn't have very good ears at the time. So it wasn't like I could just play stuff by ear. Like, I, I mean, I, I would listen and listen and listen, but trying to, like, understand the harmony and, you know, how to learn stuff off of records was was not very easy for me so um we always had a piano so sometimes i would try to sit down and figure out stuff but it was really slow and then i took a piano class in high school just like a general piano class and that started to kind of get the ball rolling in terms of understanding harmony and i i sort of thought well maybe i want to be a composer so i started you know writing simple pieces and i ended up getting my degree in classical trumpet and music ed from peabody conservatory in Baltimore, but um, I, I knew that I wanted to do jazz in some way, so it was sort of at, at Peabody where even though I was a trumpet major, I spent a lot of time practicing jazz piano, and I ended up getting a lot of gigs around Baltimore playing playing piano. So when I graduated, it just seemed like the natural the natural switch to become a pianist. You know, that was in like 1991. And so, I mean, I've I play other instruments, but I mean, I, I think I'm most known as a pianist, and and um, you know, that's I think that was more what I was meant to do, you know, is be a pianist. So, um, you know, I've been doing, I've been, you know, essentially making a living as a pianist for about 30 years. You know, how did everything start for you in your career, more specifically in New York? I mean, you've been on. 100-plus CDs, you've had plenty on your own, you've played with so many people in your career. How did everything kind of start and ramp up for you? You know, I could say that it kind of started uh, in Baltimore and Washington because I was, I was playing with a lot of people down there, and sometimes people would come to town and I would play with them, you know, uh, like sort of more name type of people, uh, and I'd be a sideman with them. And then um, I sort of made this association with Gary Bart the altoist, and Gary Thomas, the tenor saxophonist, both of whom are from Baltimore. And uh, I was playing with Gary Bard and more more gigs around D.C. and, and um, Baltimore. But um, 
But Gary Thomas had a tour of Europe. He asked me to do it, but he wanted me to play organ. And I had never played organ. <laughs> so he was looking for somebody to play, because he had this organ concept. He did this record called Exile's Gate, um, and he had different people playing organ. But I think he was, he wanted somebody to play organ sort of not like a traditional organist, you know, um, he wanted something maybe a little bit more forward-thinking, and I think his idea was to have somebody that wasn't really an organist just to come in with a fresh perspective, which um, I was happy to make the attempt to oblige that notion. You know, I didn't really know. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, the organ is a keyboard, but, you know, there's important differences. Like, you have to figure out how to turn it on and how to get the Leslie speaker working and, and all the draw bars and everything. So I had to kind of take a few little lessons. And, and another thing I used to do is I would, you know, they had a B3 at a store in Wheaton, Maryland at the uh, Chuck Levin's Music. And I used to go in and pretend like I was, you know, looking to buy. And I would just sit there and practice for as many hours as I could before people in the store started to look at me funny. So that was kind of how I got the organ the basic organ knowledge together to go on this tour. So it just seemed like the, the inertia was was going towards, like, you know, I need to get out of Maryland and get to New York because that's where the opportunities are. And so I moved to New York in 1995. And, and I think because I was already playing with Gary Bartz and I was playing at some of the clubs with him, uh, you know, Bradley's and Sweet Basil and, and that kind of thing, um, that helped me to get some visibility more quickly than if I had just come without that connection. So in a way, the, the sideman stuff, looking back on it, it was a bit of a snowball because, you know, I went from play, like playing with Gary Bartz to all of a sudden Vanessa Rubin, the vocalist, she saw me with Gary, and then she was like, well, I want to hire you, so I started working with her. And then, you know, just having that visibility you know, people started calling me, you know, and I didn't necessarily have to schmooze or anything. Like, some people really feel like you have to kind of make the scene and, you know, do a lot of networking and stuff. And I think you have to do it in a way that's really organic. Like, you know, I think if you, if you sort of do it in a way that's, that's a little bit too calculated, it, it can be a bit of a turnoff, you know, uh, which, and I can say from my own experience, some of the gigs that I've pursued sort of later, like, you know, I, uh, sort of pursued playing with Joshua Redman and, and John Schofield and Dave Douglas and, you know, I think it was a little bit too conscious and so I think they were a bit turned off by that, you know. Or maybe they didn't like how I played. That's <laughs> possible. You know what I mean? But but it's interesting because I remember having a conversation with Don Byron about it. I told him that I had pursued pursued some things. I had sent them my material. And he was like, oh, well, if you do that, you'll never work with them. You know, it's almost like the, this idea that if you, if you pursue something too hard, it, it has the opposite effect. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So I would say in terms of sideman stuff, like, I think that it was just being in the right place at the right time and, and, and sort of um, having a reputation develop. 
where it was like, oh, here's somebody who's playing with this guy. I mean, and I think that's how it works for a lot of people. You know, it's just like your name gets passed around once you're once you're kind of on this particular list. And I I, I consider it luck as well as um, skill. I mean, I I did spend a lot of hours practicing, and and any group that I played in, I, I was you know very diligent in terms of how I prepared the music, and you know I tried to bring you know, that energy to whoever I, whomever I played with. Um, and I still do that now. But, um, I mean, I would say that, I mean, and this is the kind of advice I give to my students. It's not a very cut and dry process, but it, if you make the scene and you can play well, people will know about you. You know, if you force it, you run the risk of, of alienating people, you know. Although I think it, it, maybe that works for some people in certain situations, you know, yeah. sort of, um, you know, like if you, if you were to call up somebody and be like, man, I really want to play with you. I never did that. You know, I just, um, a lot of the gigs that I got, I had, I, I didn't even know that they were thinking about me, you know. And I could go down the list. I mean, you know, Buster Williams, Don Byron, Cassandra Wilson, Robbie Coltrane, like that all just happened organically. They called me and I, and I subbed in some other groups, you know, with Nicholas Payton and, uh, Chris McBride and, and, um, you know, uh, Stefan Harris and stuff. And, but it wasn't, I never like went out of my way to say like, hey, I'm interested in playing with you, which is really strange because, you know, most other fields don't work that way. You know, you're supposed to fill out an application or you're supposed to send a resume, you know what I mean? And then yeah. do an interview process and, and act like you want to, you know, I would love to be a part of this company. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. that sort of thing. You know, in, in jazz, you don't do that. So let me ask you this. Why do you love jazz? <laughs> I think I've always had a, a uh, just a natural affinity for it, like, whereas... I mean, I would say it's strange because jazz is not America's popular music anymore. It was, you know, maybe for a brief time in the 30s and 40s. It doesn't have a public presence the way it used to. So it's a bit odd for anybody really in this day and age to get into jazz. It's just, it's such a, it's such a small share of the market and it just doesn't have, you don't hear it in ads all the time. It's not on TV. It's, it's this, you know, very underground music. You have to really kind of either have it pushed in your face or be looking for it. And it's 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 really strange compared to like I mean, the more pop music progresses away from that, the more strange it is for someone who is growing up listening to Kanye West or you know, or Drake or whatever they're listening to, you know, to hear jazz, they just don't have any reference point. I mean, at least at first. But I don't know. I I always was attracted to it. And I would even go as far as to say the less I understood it, the more I was interested in it, you know. So things like Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie, hearing that, or, or Wynton Marsalis and Branford Marsalis, like, that was always... I always was like, wow, I want to know more about that. I want to hear this. It was exciting for me. I always liked the rhythmic aspect of it and sort of the, 
the complexity of it. That's always kind of had an appeal to me. I very uh, distinctly remember in middle school, there was a group that um, came and performed, and they were kind of half jazz, half gospel. It was an instrumental quartet, but they played some kind of gospel things. And I remember being really moved by that performance, like hearing people jazz live was really, I remember just being taken to a magical place, you know, uh, even as a middle schooler, I remember after the concert, I went back to math class, and I said to the guy next to me, I was like, wow, that concert was really amazing. And he turned to me and he said, you liked that crap? So, uh, you know, that's when you're sort of like, well, do I buckle to the peer pressure and and say, well, if he doesn't like it, maybe I shouldn't like it. Or do you stick to your guns and say, well, I like it, so you're wrong. And that's what I've always done. I've always said, well, I like it, so I'm going to listen to it. And um, so I, I think I've just always had a natural affinity to it. And, I, I mean, I would say just upon further analysis now, I mean, there's definitely um, aspects of being a jazz musician as compared to other types of music um, that I appreciate. I mean, the improvisational aspect, obviously. The chance to do something unique that is unique to your experience. I really appreciate that, and I think that's been the most fulfilling thing about it, is that I can essentially create my own music within this genre, and I can be a composer, I can be a performer, I can be an improviser, and it's kind of all connected, and it's sort of like, it, it's, it's a very similar process how you evolve as a as a human being. There's room for growth, you know, and there's room for growth every night. If you play in a rock band or a pop band or a, or a cover band, you know, it's like once you learn, or or uh, you know, as a classical musician, you know, there there is a limitation. There's yeah. great things about all genres, but you know, the fact that you as a performer in you know, other genres, are limited to a certain set of notes, regardless of how much you like that music or how great you can execute it or how successful you are financially, what have you. It's like you, th there is that limitation, for better or for worse. For just how I see things, I'm grateful for that opportunity. The fact that you can take a risk. You can, you can play something that you have no idea whether it's going to work, you know, and you can do that on the bandstand and get paid to experiment, essentially. If only we could live our lives like that. I mean, that's where the true idea of freedom, I mean, we talk about freedom in terms of life, like how much freedom do we really have? I mean, you know, once you have, you know, a family, <laughs> it's like the, more, the older you get, it's sort of like, well, you, you take fewer risks because you understand the consequences a little bit more. But that's the, you're like, if I do this, this could potentially ruin my whole life, so I'm not going to yeah. do that. But in music, you can take the kind of risks that you can't take in life. You know what I mean? Like, in, in that context, that's what's important to me. Uh, that's why I value the past that I've uh, somewhat chosen and also somewhat sort of lucked into. So this is my final question for you. Everyone has an interpretation or a perception of who you are, your family, your friends, your fans, but you know who you are. So who do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs>
That sounds like a real Brooklyn question. Who, Who do, do you, you think, think you are? <laughs> you this talking is, to me? This, this is this is Goodfellas with the jazz fan. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I make you laugh. I'm a big clown. Red nose, big, big feet. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's funny. Uh, you know, uh, I think we're all, you know, the human condition is, is something to really consider. Uh, and I think... Who am I? I mean... You know, I'm very dedicated to music. Obviously, I have a family, and I, I, I'm, I really love my kids. You know, they're they're amazing. Uh, we're sort of given a, a purpose from a higher authority. I think my purpose was to be a musician. It's not always the easiest uh, lifestyle, you know, but I think at some point, and, you know, the older you get, the more you tend to look back, but I sort of... You know, I'm getting to the point where I'm probably going to be looking back more than I'm looking forward. Although I still want to look forward. That's the thing is I feel like as a person, we should never stop growing. We should never stop learning. Our, our time on earth is valuable. Maybe some people get to a point where they're like, this is who I am. This is what I do. I'm not going to change anything. I'm not going to explore anything. I don't judge people for doing that. I think that there is maybe a sensibility to that 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 is fine but for me i there's just so much to explore and so i don't necessarily want to be complacent you know it is a natural tendency as you get older to sort of think in in a different way you know certainly like from a physical standpoint you know we're we're even the healthiest 50 year olds you know, have to start to consider some things, you know. The healthiest 60-year-old is like, is, you know, um, going to have different limitations and, and a different outlook. I, there's still so much that I want to do musically. I'm still embracing everything as a process, you know what I mean? And seeing that it that there's always something to learn. Even though I'm entering sort of the next chapter in a way, like, I still feel, I don't feel like that's necessarily a negative thing. I think I can still, you know, learn things. I can still improve as a player. And, and there's things I want to do career-wise. It's essentially, as a musician, and I think as a person, you just keep doing it until you can't do it anymore. That's how I think about music. That's how I think about life. And I guess that's who I am. <laughs> I like it, man. That's a great answer. Yeah. George, thank you. I appreciate you opening up about your music, about your life in music and jazz. It's, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and cats in Portland, New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to George for his class, his cool, and his time. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, Go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.